Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a brand new fortnightly podcast that's all about comic book movies. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me as always to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick and James Hunt. Cinematic Universe is a fortnightly podcast in which we'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news, and then we'll explore one comic book movie or television show in depth during our main discussion. This week we'll be casting our eyes over Mark Stephen Johnson's 2003 film Daredevil. But before any of that, we're going to introduce ourselves properly so you can get to know us a little bit better... Uh, Seb, why don't you kick us off? Hello, yes, um, I'm Seb Patrick. Um, I'm one half of the comics website Panel Beats, and uh, I also write for Den of Geek and BBC America. Uh, and I used to be the comic book movie specialist over at Film4.com, but then I don't know what really happened there. Some <laughs> websites came in, and yeah. So, Seb, who is the other half of the partnership at Panel Beats? That would be uh, that would Mr. be James me. Hunt. Yeah. <laughs> James, <laughs> tell us all about you. Uh, as you say, I am the other half of Panel Beats uh, and formerly Alternate Cover. Um, I'm the film and TV reviewer at Den of Geek, and I used to be a staff reviewer for Comic Book Resources. Excellent. Um, so yeah, I, I guess that makes seven James our comic book experts. Um, so each week they're going to help me get to grips with the comic book side of comic book movies. Um, and hopefully you as well, if you're less in the know, or they'll just be preaching to you and I'll seem like an absolute idiot, uh, <laughs> because I am more of a movie guy. In the past, I've written for places like The Playlist, um, Hey You Guys, Empire Magazine, uh, The Radio Times, um, and I'm currently employed by Film4.com as the editorial assistant. Um, and if you want to find some of my comic book writing, you could find my Guardians of the Galaxy review from last year, um, which is what Seb was alluding to. <laughs> so um that's what we do so hopefully i'm gonna bring some movie knowledge and some comic book ignorance and seven james are gonna bring comic book knowledge uh but not movie ignorance basically i'm irrelevant uh, to be I'm fair i'm i'm quite movie ignorant oh excellent Thanks. like anything that's not comic book movies especially we'll all try and bring a, a little bit of ignorance but I'll bring it <laughs> i'm just i'm just ignorant of you know societal conventions and stuff so <laughs> um let's let's then get let's dive into the podcast and we'll start off with our first section as it will be every week which is news um and i guess the main news this week guys is that we got our second look at age of ultron uh the second age of ultron trailer what did you guys think 
I would I would maybe not describe it as a second look at Age Age of Ultron so much as a look from a slightly different angle of basically the same <laughs> thing as we saw the first time. Yeah, there's not not an awful lot of new stuff, is there? There is. There's one very interesting shot which looks like it might be a Wakandan, which is interesting. Okay, so that that is the that's the Lady by the Lake. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm looking at a Avengers Age of Ultron trailer breakdown from denofgeek.com. I don't know who wrote that. Um, but, yeah, they they have selected the Lady by the Lake as one of the more interesting moments of the trailer. James, that's your article. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Now, I did a little bit of Googling, and there was an article on HitFix that was uh, identifying some possible people who that could be. And the one that they said was most likely was Shuri... Shuri? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're working from the position of this is probably an established character, whereas I think it's just going to be a random citizen. Uh, Shuri is the sister of the Black Panther, and yeah. sometimes she's the Black Panther herself. You know, I don't see them introducing her in an Avengers film for no particular reason. The Black Panther as a concept, like Shuri is basically the female Black Panther, so if you introduce her, unless they're intending to make her the star of the next of the Black Panther film... It just, there's no narrative reason to have both of those characters up front, if you see what I mean. I think I think it's more likely to have some kind of connection to Thor, just because that location, the other person that we've seen in that location in snippets from the trailer is Thor. And that's why I think it might be an Asgardian. I, I don't know. I, if, we, if we're assuming that Andy Serkis is playing Claw... It would it would make sense to have a lot of or, or at least a gentle introduction to Wakanda and the people there. Mm-hmm. But I guess you could be right. There's something gold on the back of her head, which could potentially be Asgardian. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely the most intriguing shot of the trailer. Like mo- the, you know, the rest of it is basically stuff we've seen before, aside from young uh, young Black Widow. Okay, how do we feel about it being mostly recycled content? Are we are we happy for? this film to kind of coast by on its way to the screens and not show much of its hand or do we do we want to see more on the one hand it'd be nice to have got a trailer that showed us loads more exciting stuff but yeah i kind of think i mean what do you really need to know about this beyond it's another avengers film and it's going to introduce some slightly new elements i mean yeah you don't really want to be told the entirety of the film in trailers before we get to see it so I'm I'm quite happy being largely ignorant of a lot of what it's going to do. I guess the slight worry is that there isn't anything more to Age of Ultron than what we're seeing. That it's kind of a similar plot to last time, and that actually the big the big thing that we're all waiting for is Civil War rather than this. Uh, I think there's a lot that there isn't actually in the trailers. Like there's no uh, there's no vision in the trailers. Like we barely yeah, yeah we, we don't see, at all. we don't see Baron Strucker and he's. You know, Quicksilver's not presumably in the a major character. Quicksilver's not even yeah, exactly. It's like so there's there's a lot we haven't seen yet. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Let's move on to the second piece of news, which is about Suicide Squad. Uh Tom Hardy had been cast in Suicide Squad as Rick Flagg, but now he has left and Jake Schillenhall is being floated as a possible replacement. Uh guys, thoughts on Suicide Squad as a film and on Tom Hardy leaving. I mean it's it's a really great 
idea. Uh, it's you know, it's it's within comics. It's such a good setup, and it's a surprise that there haven't been more in the way of good Suicide comics, uh, Suicide Squad comics over the years. Most of the good Suicide Squad comics have been called Thunderbolts, I think. So you know, it should this should be a swing and a hit right out of the park because. It's going to be the sort of the type of characters that people like, which are these sort of you know villains, but sort of anti-heroes. Um, they already assembled an interesting-looking cast. Um, you know, the only real worry is the fact that DC haven't been great at movies recently. So to then have a you know to have someone like Tom Hardy in it, and then to have him immediately drop out for what's rumored to be script issues is worrying, really. Yeah, let's let's talk about those. Let's talk about those script issues because the. The suggestion or the rumour floating around is that basically most of the cast had to sign up to the film without seeing the script. Yeah. And that whichever the latest version of the script has uh, increased the screen time of the Joker, who's going to be played by Jared Leto, Mm. and of Deadshot probably because they got Will Smith to play the role. <laughs> I mean, um, on the one hand, I don't really have a major problem with... I mean, Rick Flagg is ostensibly the leader of the Suicide Squad and should be ostensibly the lead character. Mm. But I can understand dialing down his involvement for the sake of flashier names. And yeah, if you've cast Will Smith as Deadshot, I can understand wanting to make the most of that. But if it's at the... If it's for the purpose of increasing the screen time of the Joker, which I already think is a terrible decision to include him in this film in the first place. If that's indicative of the way that they're going, it seems more likely that it's going to be a mess. My my knowledge of the Suicide Squad is basically restricted to the episode of Arrow that they turned <laughs> up in. And Rick Flagg wasn't in that at all, so I don't know that character. Tell me, tell me about Rick Flagg. So the Suicide Squad um, are the... I mean, you know, they are essentially a black ops group. Um, They were actually initially introduced back in the 1950s, I think, or 1960s. They were in The Brave and the Bold, and they were just essentially um, a sort of... They were were kind of non-powered characters fighting super-powered characters, and that was kind of why they were called the the Suicide Squad, because they sort of went on hopeless missions. It didn't have the element of them being actual established villains who were put together into a secret black ops team that was that came about in the late 1980s um they originally first appeared in legends and then out of legends they were popular enough based on their appearances in that that they got their own series so that team was put together by a writer called john ostrander who wrote the book for five years between 1987 and 1992 um i haven't read all of it i've actually been reading it relatively recently um it's a really really good series because it's just it's a great sort of you know moral ambiguity um you know these kind of characters going off doing missions in countries where they shouldn't you know the the US government shouldn't really be sending people so they have to send people about whom they can have maximum deniability and you've got a group of characters obviously who have all been villains at some point yeah. um but some of within that some of whom are worse than others so for example captain boomerang who as a villain probably wouldn't be thought of as the worst because you know he's a slightly lame flash villain from the silver age right. um, but in uh, suicide squad he's one of the worst characters uh, worst as in worst person because he's a horrendous racist <laughs> and bigot and sexist and misogynist and he's just awful and so it's like there are other characters who are actual killers and yet somehow he manages to be worse than them so where does where does rick flag come from what who who's so rick, rick flag is the he's i mean he's the leader of the team i don't think he was actually he's the link to the original suicide squad because i okay. think his father was a member of the original suicide squad so he's rick flag jr um and he's essentially assigned as the leader i don't think i think he i could be wrong but i think he was created for the suicide squad right. so he's actually you know 
he was created within the pages. And can of the he do series. anything? Does he have powers? Does he? I don't think so. Most of them don't have okay. powers, though. Um, you know, most of them are sort of you know gimmick villains, or you know, their power is just to be sort of crazy. Right. Yeah, exactly. But you know, Deadshot doesn't have powers. He's just you know really good at yeah. shooting things. Um, <laughs> Captain Boomerang throws boomerangs. Harley Quinn. Um, Harley Quinn's insane. Yeah, I mean Harley Quinn obviously wasn't a member of Suicide Squad yes. originally, not least because she didn't exist back then. Um, she was brought in with the New Fifty Two. Because the thing about Suicide Squad was after the early nineties, they they weren't really around for quite a long time. I think they had the odd reappearance. Um, as I say, kind of Thunderbolts, which was a Marvel series that has essentially the same concept, kind of stole a lot of their thunder and sort of had quite an acclaimed run after that um, but they were relaunched um, as part of DC's New 52 relaunch in 2011 with a series that was basically Harley Quinn plus the rest yeah. of the gang and it's been relaunched again recently with a slightly different lineup. Just to, just to check when's the movie actually out? Uh, it's next year 2016 yeah, apparently year. yeah because yeah, it just seems like they're, they're really rushing this out and it's sort of when you've got a cast with that many stars in like you imagine you'd want a quality film rather than whatever you can knock together on short notice. Yeah. I think we're going to have this discussion about the DC universe quite a bit. It's it's <laughs> we're going to have to wait and see whether it does take shape in the kind of slapshot way it seems to be doing, or whether they have got a cogent plan. And and also from what you're saying, it sounds to me like someone like Tom Hardy or Jake Gyllenhaal wouldn't really have a reason to play Rick Flag, and. Um, do, do they do they need a do, name that big for that role? Well, yeah, because I think as I mean, the, the problem that Rick Flag has is that he's kind of a necessary character because he's sort of the glue that holds the team together, and he's the reluctant leader, and you know, but also he's not that interesting a character yeah. in you know within. And the especially series, if you're throwing so. in characters like the Joker, then and maybe even Lex Luthor as well. But if you're going to have these over the top villains, you do kind of need someone to ground it a little yeah. bit. Um, but this is, I mean, I say this is why I think the concept of putting the, the Joker in is so ridiculous because the point of the Suicide Squad is that they're kind of, they're mostly kind of losers. They're kind of B and C list villains because partly because that makes them expendable because, you know, by, by the very nature of its title, one of the attributes of Suicide Squad as a series is that any one of the characters could get killed off at any point. You know, the first issue, they introduce the team in the first issue and one of them is dead by the end of the first issue. In fact, on the cover, uh, the cover strap, actually, it's like it's a picture of eight characters and it says these eight people will put their lives on the line for our country one of them won't right. be coming home and in fact one of them is dead by the end of the first which issue. also happens in the arrow episode as well actually wouldn't it be great if you got this cast of big names and one of them doesn't make it 20 minutes into the film yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> wouldn't it be cheap if we got this cast of big names and one of them doesn't make it past five minutes <laughs> we we shall have to wait and see um let's talk a bit more about marvel now um we're going to talk about this next news item kind of vaguely around it because we don't want to dig too much into spoilers, if they even are spoilers, because we don't know how much of this is true. Uh, there was a, an article on Latino Review this week um, suggesting lots of future twists and turns for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but mostly revolving around the idea that Spider-Man will be showing up in the first part of Infinity War. I'm interested in talking about, do we think Spider-Man fits in the MCU? Do do the MCU need Spider-Man? I think Spider-Man needs the MCU more than the MCU needs Spider-Man. Yeah. On the other hand, like Spider-Man is the prototypical Marvel hero. Any Marvel universe that hasn't got Spider-Man in it sort of feels incomplete by definition. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. Spider-Man's owned by Sony, who obviously have launched two recent Spider-Man movies that haven't been hugely successful. 
So the the idea the idea is that Sony might be willing to loan Spider Man to Marvel because that would essentially boost the visibility of their movies. But as far as I'm concerned, the only way I want to see Spider-Man turning up in the MCU is if Marvel have the rights to the character back and they're about to launch their own Spider-Man franchise, not not as a Sony Spider-Man turning up in Infinity War and then leaving. I can't see Spider-Man turning up in a Marvel film unless they've got some level of creative control, though. No. I think yeah, I think if we're going to get Spider-Man in the MCU, we need Spider-Man done by the MC, you know, by Marvel Studios and done properly. And even if he doesn't immediately get his own movie, it needs to be a different version. It needs to be a version that's consistent with how the MCU has been yeah, so far. Yeah, definitely. Not Mumblecore Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, well, the impression that article gave that was the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man news all but done. If if this was to happen, so we'd be seeing a new actor in the role as well. Which, on the one hand, is, it just strikes me as a little bit... Pointless is maybe not the right word. I, I'm so conflicted on Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man because I think there's so much about his version of the character that works, and I really like him as an actor, and then there's so many other ways in which he doesn't quite work. But I just think recasting Spider-Man again is just... What's the point, really? Well, if, if you're going to fold him into the MCU and start all over again, that, that is the point, I think. If he exists in that universe and he has a place in that universe, but a third, a third Sony Spider-Man, yeah, what is the point? Let's round up the rest of the news. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain America: The Winter Soldier, and X-Men: Days of Future Past have all been nominated for VFX Oscars, so they're going to be facing off against each other. And Guardians of the Galaxy was also nominated for hair and makeup, which is very nice. That's mostly just uh, I've forgotten her name now, so it's going to be really stupid. No, who plays Nova Prime? Glenn Close. Close. Glenn Close. Just Glenn, Glenn Close's, Glenn Close's wigs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then also, Gotham, Arrow, Flash will all be back next year. All those shows have been renewed, and it's increasingly looking like Constantine will be cancelled and never seen or heard from again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't watch past the first episode of Constantine, but I, I've had a slight possible urge to maybe go back and check it out at some point, because I hear it's not dreadful. I've, I'd be more interested in watching Constantine than Gotham. Well, um, I mean... You can do, but you know it's dead. <laughs> uh, I'm very glad that obviously that Flash has been renewed, but yes. it was inevitable that Flash would be renewed because it's been great. And the, my my only concern with Flash being renewed is if it was cancelled after one season, they would have to tell us the answers to all of the long running mysteries, i.e., Harrison Wells and the Reverse Flash. Now that it's being continued, presumably they will just stretch those out. For I, as long I as don't possible, know the so way the irritating. way the arrow works. I think we'll. I think we'll find out Reverse Flash. Certainly the identity of Reverse Flash by the end of this season. I, th- I think we'll find out identity of Reverse Flash. It won't be Harrison Wells, and we still won't have a clue why Harrison Wells is the way he is and what's going no, on. No, that makes him. sense as a, as a long-running mystery. Yeah. Cool. That That's, uh, that's a discussion for another show. Um, now let's move on to our second section, our main section, which is our spoiler-filled discussion of Daredevil. Before we dive into our discussion, let's take a listen to the movie's trailer. Are you here to confirm that Daredevil is responsible for this, Detective? There is no proof that Daredevil even exists. He can hear it before it makes a sound. You can sense it before it happens. He can vanish before you realize he's there. And he's the last person you'd ever expect. 
Police suspected the vigilante Daredevil was the one to bring the criminals to justice. I don't know why you read that trash. You want the truth? Tell me. She's hideous. Excuse me. I just wanted to get your name. Does every guy have to go through all this to find out your name? You should try asking for my number. Okay, so that was the Daredevil trailer. So, as we said before, that is the 2003 film directed by Mark Stephen Johnson, who also wrote it. Uh, ben Affleck stars as Daredevil, Jennifer Garner is Elektra, Colin Farrell is Bullseye, Michael Clark Duncan is the Kingpin. We could read a synopsis of what happens in the movie, but I thought it would be more interesting to ask you two guys, what what do you think the plot of Daredevil is? We should probably make clear that we all watched the director's cut and not the theatrical cut, although yeah. I did watch both, so we can bring a bit of that. But what, what do you guys think happens in Daredevil? Okay, the story of Daredevil, as I see it, is about the protector of Hell's Kitchen sort of learning to live in the environment that he's also protecting. Yeah. That's the story of the film. Whether that's the high concept of it, it, you know, it doesn't feel like it is. It's just something, as we said slightly before the mic was actually turned on, it's like Daredevil responding to a lot of stuff that happens to him rather than doing anything specific. If you if you were telling a friend, Seb, what happens in Daredevil, what would you say? So Daredevil, the blind lawyer turned vigilante in Hell's Kitchen, meets and falls in love with a girl called Electra, whose father gets murdered by Wilson Fisk, the kingpin, in order that he be portrayed as being the actual kingpin so that Wilson Fisk can keep getting away with it. Daredevil and Elektra attempt to avenge said murder and take down the kingpin. Okay, that's very interesting, though, because the, the actual moment that you're talking about where Elektra's father is killed is... Well, it's that's kind of like the end of the second act of the movie. I was going to say, that, that cuts out the entire first sort of 30 to 40 minute <laughs> chunk of the film. I suppose, yeah, but the first 30 to 40 minute chunk is the origin of Daredevil, and I kind of, I, I don't really feel like the film gets underway until they've got the origin out of the way. Well, see, this is something I was going to say. One of the things that I think is wrong with Daredevil is that it's like a film and its sequel stitched together. Hmm. Like, they spend a lot of time recapping Daredevil's origin, and then they move on to all of the sort of popular Daredevil stories, where really, you know, if you were honestly adapting Daredevil, you'd want to start with his origin story, and then in the sequel, you'd want to bring in Elektra and Bullseye. Hmm. And it's sort of, in this film, they've kind of gone, well, we might only get one chance, let's just put all of it in. <laughs> hey, they were right. <laughs> I don't know, I'm I'm kind of glad, because actually I was surprised upon re-watching it, because this was the first time I'd seen the director's cut, and I hadn't watched the um, theatrical cut for quite a long time. I remember thinking, oh, it does, it's it's not, a su- it's a superhero film that doesn't waste time doing the origin, it just gets pretty much straight in there. I'd forgotten quite how long it spends on the origin, and I was sitting there watching it thinking, oh, this, actually, they do spend like half an hour doing it properly and and in a way i kind of wish they hadn't i wish they'd just sort of hit the beats in a quick flashback rather than spending the time on it that they did although that said i I quite like how it plays out i just think it's a waste of time but i mean i actually i actually like this movie i i like it quite a lot but i mean i i find it interesting that we're talking about kind of the stuff that this film does wrong as a two-hour version because as i say i watched the theatrical version and then the um director's cut and it's it's remarkable quite how much better the director's cut is it adds a full half hour extra and if we get on to talking about how why the film was a success why it was a failure kind of commercially and with audiences 
the, the theatrical cut just doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, there's there's so much stuff that's added in the director's cut. Some stuff that just works better in terms of, you know, it's a little bit more violent. Um, you get certain scenes like the scene where Matt loses his sight uh, are, are fleshed out a little bit. But generally, there's there's like a there's like a half hour section in the middle of the director's cut, which is completely different to the theatrical cut. It's just so much better, and it makes sense. And I mean, you guys didn't watch the theatrical cut, but it's it's crazy how compromised this movie was. The important thing to notice is that if you watch the theatrical cut, at the end of the film, the kingpin gets arrested for losing a fight to Daredevil. Yes. Whereas if you watch the director's cut, there's a story which explains why that happens. Although it still doesn't fully explain it, because all that happens is they kind of they solve the fact that the murder is connected to Fisk via his lawyer guy. A murder that takes place in the director's cut, but not in the yeah. theatrical. Yeah. The film never actually explains why that person was murdered or what Fisk had to do with it or what he had to gain from it or how he was directly connected to it. That's you know, it goes a certain way to it. I mean, it's still better than the theatrical cut in terms of it gives the police a reason to go after Fisk, but it does still fair, doesn't really explain what happened in that subplot. Yeah, but to be fair, he's the kingpin. Like he's the kingpin. What he does is kill people and get away with it. Like that's yeah, that's the buy-in for the character. I certainly think you get a lot more of a sense of the kingpin being an evil bastard in the theatrical. <laughs> yeah, there's there's just one scene at the start that introduces him slightly differently. You you see him full on murdering someone. Uh, which mm. you don't get in the theatrical cut. You said kind of almost in a in a slightly defensive way. You said I really like this film. And it's like I actually I, I I like it while not thinking that it's objectively very good um, yeah, because yeah. I I like it as a portrayal of Daredevil the character. But I think it does even in the director's cut. I think it has severe problems as a film because in the director's cut, okay, some stuff might make more sense, but a lot more stuff drags and it's and it's a slow film in a lot of places for me. Can we get into that then? I I obviously know very little about Daredevil outside of this movie and the fact that Marvel are making their own TV show coming up, which is kind of the reason why we thought this would be good to discuss now. Mm. Um, so can you tell me like what's appealing about Daredevil as a comic book character and how much the film captures of that? Daredevil's weird because, like, I mean, and James can probably go into this more than, more than me because I think he's been a fan of him for longer, but... Daredevil shouldn't really be as good as he is because he's really just a bit of a Spider-Man knockoff, admittedly with the hook that he's blind. But when he was first introduced, that's all he kind of really is, is a kind of street-level vigilante. He was a kind of like conscious attempt by Stan Lee to create sort of... He was doing this thing of heroes who have difficulties in their, in their personal life as well. And it was sort of... I'm not going to say cynical. It was a very sort of... Like he was adhering to the template of oh what what problem can I give this hero? Okay, he's blind. So what are his powers? Oh, his senses compensate for that. Like it was it wasn't Stanley's greatest moment of inspiration, I'll say that much. Yeah. And yet, you know, for a very long period of time, some of the best comics that Marvel have published have been about him. I mean, you start with the the eighties Frank Miller stuff, which I personally, as not a big fan of Frank Miller, think is a little bit overrated, but you know, sort of speaking as in terms of the general consensus is held up as one of Marvel's best runs. You've then got a dip in the 90s where no one really knew what to do with him in the wake of that. But ever since Kevin Smith came on and that's what James 1998, so kind of over 15 yeah, years ago. You. Kevin Smith star of Daredevil. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Smith did a short run and ever since then 
pretty much every writer who's been on the main Daredevil ongoing series has turned in some of the absolute best work of their career. You've got Kevin Smith, Brian Marcobendis, Ed Brubaker, Andy Diggle, and Mark Wade. That's a decade and a half of Daredevil comics that have been consistently brilliant. So how much of that predates the movie? How So obviously the Kevin Smith does. The Kevin Smith and the Frank Miller. Bendis came... I mean, Bendis, I think, was around just before the movie but didn't right. really have an influence on the movie there is a there more uh, bendis's run took a bit more influence from the movie particularly in his portrayal of bullseye okay. um, but really when it in terms of what feeds into the movie it's basically frank i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Miller and Kevin Smith stuff that feeds mm-hmm. entirely into and all of the 90s stuff is ignored because it's dreadful um so yeah the movie is a pretty straight up adaptation of the kind of themes and some of the direct plots of um mainly frank miller's stuff with kevin smith's stuff it's more some of the visuals and the tonal stuff than anything yeah. and the sort of the the catholic theme and the sort of you know the the catholic guilt that runs through him as a character this actually is something i was going to say one of the reasons i think daredevil works so well is because as a character he's a vehicle for a lot of different types of imagery and sort of themes like his you know if you want to do a, a story about fathers and sons that's a daredevil story mm. if you want to do a a story about the conflicts between morality and legality that's a daredevil story if you want to do something that's about religion and society like that's a daredevil story do you know what's amazing about all of those things you just said as well though james all of those things are present in the director's cut but they're not present in the (laughs) theatrical cut so in a in the director's cut um matt finds religion kind of midway through he starts yeah he he edges closer towards Mm -hmm. religion as he as he goes through whereas in the theatrical cut the priest is present at stages of the film that he shouldn't be the father-son stuff is fleshed out. The scenes after Matt loses his sight, you get you get a lot more of, mm. of that relationship. And what was the other thing you said? <laughs> uh, the sort of legality and yeah, law and morality. Oh, the lawyer stuff, which which is a, a major major plot line, which is basically the thing that got cut out the whole Coolio thing. But you get Matt and Foggy mm. spending lots of time together in the director's cut that just 
isn't there in the theatrical. In the, one thing about the theatrical, though, it, it, what it does nail in quite a succinct scene is the the, the 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 aspect of Daredevil, which is by day he fights these law cases and by night he goes out and dispenses justice where he thinks that the legal system has failed with that sequence where he chases down the guy. And in what is actually, like, you don't see it very often in superhero movies, but he basically pretty much straight up kills the guy by pushing him in front of a train. That scene yeah. is amazing. Yeah. That scene is so good. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I fully agree with the idea. I think you could have done that scene and have the guy trip over rather than him be pushed. Uh, I think would have worked better. I think refusing to save someone is different from killing them, and I think you could have done that better. But apart from that... But does Daredevil kill people in the comics? He has done, but it's he, more... It's it's the moment it, where yeah. he crosses the line. It's treated as a moment where he crosses a line, and when he does, it's generally something that he has a lot of difficulty coming back from. Right. You see, for me, without that comic knowledge, that scene is so fucking cool because you, you're within five, ten minutes at the start of a movie going, here is Daredevil, and he's not like Spider-Man, and he's not like the X-Men, who mm. were the other big screen superheroes at the time. He's going to kill this guy and, like, maniacally I mean, I, th- I think that's why they it. did it. I think they he, did it to he, set him apart. He grins when he yeah. kills him. One of the better things about Daredevil is that he's a lot more sort of intense. You know, in a, in that sense, he is kind of Marvel's Batman because mm. he is a sort of doesn't go out a day, scares criminals superhero, not a quipping, uh, fun, happy time superhero. He's also one of the few superheroes who, like Batman, for example, basically, you know, under any reasonable view has mental problems but within the context (laughs) of the comic he's treated as well he's batman that's how he is in daredevil consistently it always comes back to the fact that there is something seriously wrong with matt and the comic never usually shies away from saying yeah look there is something actually wrong with him a lot of superheroes get away with a lot of stuff that they shouldn't really but with him it's like everyone around him is like yeah matt you kind of got a problem really it seems like a good point to talk about ben affleck then uh (laughs) because If he's if he is here playing the Marvel version of Batman, <laughs> um, do do you like Ben Affleck in this role? Do you yeah. think do you think his yeah, performance think, is good? You know, I mean, was... we're all kind of Ben Affleck fans anyway, aren't we? So we might be a bit kind of biased on this, but I, I'll be honest, I haven't always been. I, I I do wonder whether maybe he was the wrong actor at the time in terms of what people how people viewed Ben Affleck. Yeah, in terms of his profile and yeah. sort of audience interest there were probably better choices but i think there's nothing he don't he does with the role that is particularly bad i would say the worst thing that ben affleck does in this film is his haircut (laughs) when he is matt his his spiky goofy haircut just it it reminds you a bit of the ben affleck that the public didn't (laughs) like they also i think they should have just committed to having him not be a redhead rather than attempt to dye his hair a little bit like i know matt is supposed to be a redhead in the comics but nobody would have complained if he would just had ben affleck's natural hair color no one would have really because you just get you get a few scenes where you can see this bad dye job and then other scenes it's just oh he's got dark hair so it just looks a bit daft so is he irish is that is he of yeah. irish descent yeah he is, is that yeah. the, so which makes sense with charlie cox in the Clearly they weren't that worried about sort of ethnicity and that sort of, you know, aspect of character. Oh, do you mean with the Kingpin? Well, because they changed the race of Kingpin, you know, that's fine. They changed the race of Electra, so yeah. they didn't want her Greek, they wanted her American, presumably. So she has a Greek name and a Greek-looking father, but <laughs> apart from that... But Jennifer Garner's face. I, I actually think in terms of performance, I there's, there's no one in the main cast here and i extend that to joey pants and um 
No, just joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you've got Colin Farrell, who is amazing. And I think when Michael Clark Duncan is allowed to be angry, he's really good as well. I mean, you, you can't think of many pe- many other people who would have had the physical presence to play Wilson Fisk. I, th- I, I think they nailed it pretty well with, with casting Clark Duncan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing, though, isn't it, of we're allowed to change the race of this villain, but we can't change the hero. Like, I remember during the film's production phase, Cuba Gooding Jr. really wanted to play Daredevil. And, like, he was lobbying hard for it, and it just didn't happen because, you know, Daredevil was white. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's interesting because there's so much internet yeah. chatter about Fantastic Four at the moment because there is that race change. I do wonder if part of it is more they don't care so much if it's a villain. The kind of person who's going to be annoyed about that doesn't care so much if it's a yeah, villain. exactly. And I think that tells you a lot about that kind of person. Mm, quite. Um, I mean, I, I kind of think there's, there is slightly a sense of it, it adds a different yeah. overtone to the kingpin if he is you know, a black man who worked as a hitman for a mob boss and worked his way up to being a mob boss. You have to tread carefully when doing that because I think I think it opens up possible difficulties that you could be accused of, you know, perpetuating certain racial stereotypes. I don't think the film goes that way. I generally think it is it is a good thing that they did that because, you know, it's a very white film if it doesn't have Michael Clark Duncan in it. Let's let's talk about Colin Farrell, who is incredible in this movie. Uh, Bullseye for me I don't think there are many screen comic book villains as good as Bullseye. And I'm coming that from the same approach that I thought it was really great that you see Matt as this, or Daredevil as this murderous superhero at the start. You've got Bullseye, who is introduced killing someone with um, a paperclip, then choking an old woman to death on, a, on an aeroplane in this just horrible but amazing sadistic scene. So then by the time he turns up and he's fighting Daredevil and hunting Elektra, you really get the sense of how insane he is in, in a great comic book villain kind of way. It is. It interests me that Marvel struggles to come up with good villains, like Marvel Studios, I mean, sorry. Mm. And yet, ten years ago, you've got Fox coming up with someone who is arguably more memorable than the hero. Marvel have almost gone the, the opposite direction in terms of the MCU now. I do think there was... There was probably a, a long stretch pre the MCU where consistently comic book villains were more interesting than the heroes. But Colin Farrell is great. I would love if if he turned back up in the Netflix series, I would be delighted. <laughs> he probably won't. Whatever tone they're going for, whatever tone, I think he's he feels so unique that you could just throw him into any universe and he, Yeah, he I can sense. I could definitely see that character working alongside Tony Stark, for example, because like he's just he's got that level of cartoonishness that sort of the early comic book films, the sort of mid noughties comic book films are sort of trying to avoid for the most part. Should we talk about where where Daredevil kind of sits at the time in 2003 then? So he showed up kind of at the start of this new wave of superheroes after Spider-Man and X-Men had found great success. So it shows up in 2003 and that's the same year that we've got um, Hulk, X2, and in other comic movies, uh, the <laughs> League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> it did it did exactly the same at the bo- box office as League of Extraordinary Gentlemen did. Less than half of what X2 did, and a solid 80, 90 million less than Hulk. So it clearly wasn't a success. Do you think? Do you think this darker superhero was actually just? It turned up a couple of years too early. I mean, it's two years, two years before Batman begins. Uh, yeah, I mean, but it's, it's it's in that first, it's in that first wave of superhero movies that were made after nine eleven, where 
blockbusters were generally getting darker. But it but it wasn't embraced in the same way that Batman Begins was two years later. I think part of that is just Daredevil as a character is he's not in the consciousness. So as soon as you try and do a sort of a dark superhero who, by the way, dresses up like a devil at night, like it doesn't doesn't work. I can see what how that would be a hard sell, especially in a world that hasn't gone through you know this is a guy who puts on a suit of armor and flies and here's a norse god and here's captain america and they all hang out together but is it is it that the film was destined to fail or that it does things wrong and like we said that the the 93 minute version is so compromised and if you think you think about uh, superhero movies in general i was looking through the only superhero movie that i could find that was similar in length to this was uh rise of the silver surfer <laughs> Every every comic book movie is at least an hour forty five, if not two hours plus, and that's not a new thing. That's just yeah. always what they've been. Do you think that this was Daredevil? World is not ready for this concept and to embrace it, or the film screwed the pooch. The thing is, like I, I would have said, you know, no one's going to see an Iron Man film in two thousand and six. So you know, you can't know with the right material, any superhero can be a hit. It's just I'm not sure this was the right material. But I, I do think with Daredevil, I think if you, I think if you're going to do Daredevil right, it does need to have a certain tone. You know, if you're going to do Daredevil, you do kind of want it to have that dark and slightly R-rated feel. And I would compare it to something like Dread, which you know. Dread in the form that it ended up coming out, I'm talking about the second Dread film, obviously not the first one, was never going to be a big hit just because, you know, in terms of immediate box office numbers, it was never going to take a huge amount of money, but it satisfied pretty much everyone who saw it. Now, Daredevil doesn't do that, but I think a Daredevil film that satisfied people who wanted a good Daredevil film would never take in big numbers anyway. I sort of think the material is fine, but the director didn't handle it properly like when you look at the films he did afterwards they all have similar problems to daredevil and it's kind of well maybe with a better director this could have been a better film and he also wrote the scripts as well i was gonna say i think it needed another writer on it because it's got it's got clunkiness in the script and you know i don't think there's much wrong with the story aside from certain elements you know as i say not entirely coming together but with the dialogue you do just kind of think when you've got a director who also is the sole screenwriter they need to be pretty damn good and it mark stephen johnson isn't really (laughs) and it comes it comes back to that theatrical versus director's cut thing again because if you're going to give a director you know he is the writer director he's kind of the sole Mm. creative input on this thing to then take that creativity away from them and say shave a quarter of this movie (laughs) off that's that's a big that's a big thing to do and when you talk about tone the the theatrical version almost feels like a romantic comedy (laughs) in some scenes and then it'll flip back to the the darker superhero stuff but there's more of a balance between those two whereas the romance seems on the back burner in the director's cut Except for that bloody fight scene, yeah. which they really... That should never have made yeah. it in. That's the bit that most people say, like, just... That was what turned them off the film, because it was just too cheesy or whatever. Yeah. That first half hour in general, I didn't I didn't like the kid bits. I didn't like Matt as a kid learning to be Neo from The Matrix. That Actually, that's the stuff I like. Oh, yeah, though. no, that's... Yeah, that's liked, stuff when oh, really? he's training. I like the Daredevil origin. I, I like the Daredevil origin, because I really like the story of him and his dad, and I think all the stuff with his dad in the film is great, because I think his dad is really well cast, and they never... <laughs> that story of you know Jack Murdoch and him turning the way that he did and his kind of redemption before getting killed all of that I think they get dead on I think after that when he when he's kind of trained <laughs> is pretty awful I think we could do without it being narrated by Ben Affleck it makes more sense in the director's cut that it's his confession yeah but 
It's post Spider Man though. You know, when Spider Man comes yeah. out with the the Tobey Maguire narration at the beginning and the end, and that's one of the things I thought upon immediately starting Daredevil when it starts with the narration and the fact that it ends with the narration, it's just like <laughs> you've just seen Spider Man and you've just done an identical narration at the beginning and the end. And actually, the New York of this film does seem like Spider Man's New York with the lights turned off. <laughs> Fair point. Yeah. Speaking of lights turned off, I always think it's a really nice touch. Aside from the fact that the whole sensory deprivation tank thing is ludicrous, because why doesn't he just put on like some noise cancelling earmuffs? Yeah, what is that? Is that is that from the comics? I don't know. I, I've never seen it in the comics. The comics have never really needed to explore. That, that was so confusing to me. I actually think that's that's some there's some of the sequences that consistently don't work. Is anything that happens back at Matt's apartment? But, but what I was going to say about the apartment was I quite like the touch of the fact that he never has the lights on in his apartment. Like, that's that's quite a... It would be an easy thing to forget and just have a load of scenes where he's in his apartment and he's got the lights on. The fact that they noticed that he wouldn't have lights on in his apartment, I think, is quite a good little touch. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit. I don't know. Before we start to uh, wrap this all up, can we talk about... It's one of my favourite things that the movie does but i'm not sure whether you two will agree the sonar vision the actual visualization of matt's powers i i think it looks great and particularly in the scene up on the roof with Electra, where he sees her properly for the first time just as a point of order it, uh, it's called radar sense okay you know <laughs> i only watched the Officially. movie <laughs> the thing is it's called radar but doesn't it work more it works more like sonar than radar though doesn't it does it? does that is true like they call it radar but it is basically sonar <laughs> So I'm right, but I'm wrong. Yeah. Okay, that's going to become a theme, I think. But he does say he does say radar in the film, and they've always said okay. radar in the comics. But did you did you guys like it? No, I, yeah, I think it's good. I think it works. I actually I don't like that scene on the roof, and the reason why I don't like that scene on the roof is that you know when you've got a character whose main defining attribute is that he's blind, the fact that you have this love story and he has to see her, like they have to contrive a way for him to see that she looks like Jennifer Garner, annoys me a bit because it just takes away a little element from it. Looks it looks so good. It's a bit like the line later in the film where she says, um, I, I wish you could see what I look like tonight. And it's like, full of yourself much? <laughs> um, but no, I mean, in terms of how it works and the visualisation of it, it's good. The thing I like that they did, when they, they have them sort of arguing in the rain and she puts the umbrella up mm. and that makes her disappear. Yeah. Like, I like that moment. Uh, I just think sort of the problem with Daredevil's powers is they're not very cinematic, sort of inherently. That's as good an effect as you're going to get. So I was just going to point out, after that roof scene in the theatrical cut, they go and burn, uh, which which doesn't <laughs> happen in the director's cut. So they, it, yeah. which, again, I think works a lot better for the relationship between the two of them, that it's, mm-hmm. that it's unconsummated. Whereas in the film, he doesn't leave her on the rooftop, they go and have sex, and the middle of the film <laughs> makes no sense. <laughs> However, I've got to say that the theatrical version is probably far more consistent with the character of Daredevil as presented in the comics. The idea that there is a Daredevil film in which he doesn't sleep with anyone for the duration of it is totally out oh. of character. Yeah, that is a fair Maybe point. Maybe I just like screen version of Daredevil. Maybe I'd hate the comics. It's funny, there's a, there's a period in the sort of, I think it was 80s, was it, where Daredevil co-headlined his book with Black Widow. And they, they had lots of sex, did they? They were sleeping together for a lot of that yeah, run, okay. yeah. That's one of the things that I think is going to be interesting with him in the MCU is if they... They probably won't because the spheres that they inhabit are so different, but the fact that they've got the possibility to have Daredevil and Black Widow in the same area is interesting. I get a sense from, from the MCU that maybe uh, Hulk and Black Widow is a thing. Uh, basically, they haven't got Betty in the... They haven't got Betty in the Avengers film, so they have to come up with the surrogate. That's what's going hey, on they there. could bring Liv Tyler back whenever they like. They shouldn't, yep. but they could. <laughs> <laughs> 
But seeing as we're not talking about Daredevil anymore, it probably makes sense to wrap up that section now. <laughs> but broadly, I think we kind of like the movie in its director's cut form, but understand why it didn't work. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I like it as a version of Daredevil, but I think it has problems as a film. And I wish it did the lawyer stuff a bit better, because it does have a lot of courtroom scenes, but most of them don't actually show Matt being a good That's lawyer. True. Like, they only win the case because Karen Page turns a piece of paper upside down. And, like, Matt doesn't actually do anything to win that case. And that's a shame because in the comics, some of the stuff with him being a great lawyer is some of the better stuff. She's a major character in the comics, right? Karen Page? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's Deborah Ann Wall in the Netflix show. Oh, right. Whereas, whereas in this, she barely she barely figures. Yeah. Well, you've got Electra as the love interest, so there's not really any room for Karen. I was going to say, um, she, she was like the sort of 60s love interest. So it's kind of, it's hard for her to be worked into a film that's got Electra yeah. in. Because she's the gritty late, later era love interest. Um, just briefly as well, because you mentioned Joe Pants, um, I really like um, Ben Urich in the movie. Ben Urich is one of the absolute best characters in Marvel's history, and he's reasonably well served by the film. I think. I think they're doing quite okay. well. And he he knows how to set the logo on fire as well, which is important. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> Although, again, you say he's recently reasonably served by the film. He's not by the theatrical cut. <laughs> So if we're recommending that anyone goes watch this movie, find the director's cut and and burn in a flaming D logo every copy of the theatrical <laughs> cut that exists. Uh, this is a thing we're going to do every week where I personally want to get to grips with comics a bit better through the movies. Um, and hopefully the you, the audience, will take it upon yourselves to do this as well is i'm going to ask seb and james to recommend a run of the comics kind of related to what we've just seen where i can get to know this character a bit better so guys what daredevil should i be reading after having seen this movie if you just want one a one volume daredevil story i would yep. say give kevin smith's daredevil a try okay write it down kevin smith it's called Guardian Devil. Guardian Devil. Uh, it's yep. eight issues long. It's got a Spider-Man in the end. Ooh. And it's basically sort of where all, all of Daredevil's current stories spring from. In fact, a lot of the aesthetic of current Marvel comes out of that. But that's a massively different podcast. <laughs> you know, it was designed as an introduction for new readers to get to grips with the modern incarnation of Daredevil. Okay. Seb, do, is that something you'd agree with? Or yeah, I mean, I, I don't quite enjoy the, the the kevin smith art quite as much as james does i think it's partly i'm not a big fan of the artwork which is by joe casada who became marvel's editor-in-chief shortly after it and who the character of jose casada is obviously named after incidentally we didn't touch on the fact that i love that every character in the daredevil film who, it, who doesn't come from the comics is basically named after someone who was written or drawn daredevil yes. <laughs> i really like that um all the all the boxes yes yeah, the boxes right? um yeah. the yeah casada i'm sure there's another there's another mention of uh, a name as well but yeah you've got like remit they mentioned remitter miller bendis and stuff mm. yeah um bra michael bendis is daredevil you could pick up pretty much anything from his run uh, that is worth reading uh, it's a big long form storyline so just okay. starting at the beginning of his run would be a good idea because his, his stuff follows on shortly after kevin smith and is brilliant um i would also make a recommendation uh, as i mentioned i'm not as keen on frank miller's daredevil stuff from the 80s um but in the early 90s he did um an, basically an origin retelling called 
called Daredevil the Man Without Fear. Um, it's drawn by uh, John Romita Jr., who is uh, one of my favourite artists in comics. And the reason I'm recommending it is that on the 25th of February, uh, it comes out as issue 31 of Marvel's Mightiest Heroes, which is a graphic novel part work um, <laughs> that I write backup supplementary material for. So Always on the yeah, job. So uh, if you want to read Daredevil the Man Without Fear, pick it up from a UK news agent from late February in a lovely hardback edition with bonus material and stuff that also contains his very a reprint of his very first appearance from the 60s as well Seb can you, uh, can you swing me a free copy mm, free no copy? <laughs> <laughs> ah, damn it <laughs> on that note uh, let's move on to section 3 every week I'm going to be asking Seb and James to pitch me a superhero comic book concept and I'm going to choose between their pitches. I'm going to play Kevin Feige and decide which one of these is going to go to the screen. So this week we thought with Agent Carter now well up and running that we would see if there could be any other character from the Marvel Cinematic Universe who could get their own TV spin-off, who would you like it to be um, and what would happen? So guys, pitch me that spin-off. Seb, uh, let's start with you. Pitch me your MCU TV spin-off. Okay, so my TV spin-off would focus on the character of Gallagher Guy, a character who we all remember from <laughs> Avengers, who was playing Gallagher when he was supposed to be working. The TV series would simply be called Gallagher Guy, um, and it would follow his attempt to get the world record score in Gallagher and be recognised by the Twin Galaxies International Scoreboard. Uh, so it's basically the King of Kong, but in the Marvel Universe, uh, and you know we would follow his various misadventures as you know he's kind of trying to get the record while also trying to maintain a career as a mid-level shield agent and stop helicarriers from crashing. Uh, we get cameo appearances from Billy Mitchell and Walter Day and everybody, and yes, it would be great fun. And he would eventually get the record in the end. Okay, sounds good. I mean, you went, you went about 10 seconds over, so that might count against you. I'm not, I'm not going to make any decisions yet. <laughs> maybe, maybe James will go 11 seconds over, 12 seconds under. Who knows? James, pitch me your MCU spin-off. Uh, my spin-off is called Darcy Lewis Star Reporter. Uh, basically what happens is Natalie Portman falls off a cliff and dies so <laughs> Darcy Lewis decides to quit her career as a scientist and become a reporter and all she does is go around say New York uh, being sarcastic at things and solving crimes in her spare time okay you did he did go like 11 seconds under <laughs> <laughs> together you you definitely made up a, a, a solid there minute um, James what I like about your idea is that Natalie Portman would be going off a cliff. And not because I hate the character of Jane Foster, but because I think Natalie Portman would be happy for that to happen. I think if you told her that uh, that her character would be dying in a TV spin-off, she'd be she'd be But he, he didn't he didn't say that the character falls off a cliff. He said Natalie Portman falls off a cliff. Oh yeah, that's a dark <laughs> twist. That's a very dark twist, James. Um Seb I, I like your idea of Gallagher guy. Both of them seem very separate from the Marvel Universe. But no, you saw him playing Gallagher in Avengers. It's an integral part well, of the Marvel Universe. But but what I'm saying is, it seems like you are both taking a character who is in the Marvel Universe and kind of making them do something else off by the side. <laughs> like, at least Peggy is still <laughs> investigating marvelly related Well, you things. see, the, 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 like, the look, twist in mine is that the right? person who he's going up against for the world record is actually Tony Stark. <laughs> and that's why Tony Stark interrupted him on the helicarrier. I'm sort of imagining that every week she'd have to sort of phone up Tony Stark or someone and just ask them for, you know, advice. 
And, you know, maybe Tony Stark tries to hit on her and she just treats him like a creepy uncle. I'm going to have to make a decision. And this decision, it basically comes down to, I think James's pitch would also lead to the cancellation of Two Broke Girls because Kat Dennings <laughs> could not do both at once. So I'm going to come down on the side of James and Darcy Lewis. Um, and I that, that's fair. That, um, 13 episodes coming to a screen near you very soon. Better start writing. Okay, well, sadly, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast, but we'll be back in two weeks with our second episode. Before we go, James, Seb, do you want to let listeners know where they can find you online? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I'm at James Hunt on Twitter. And I'm at Seb Patrick on Twitter. And I am at Joe Cunningham 14. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Cinematic Universe. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Everybody still listening? Great. If comic book movies have taught us nothing else, it's to wait until the end of the credits. In our post-credits sting each week, we'll be announcing the main subject of discussion for the next podcast. So, tell me something, my friend. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Cinematic Universe will return with episode two in two weeks' time, when we'll be discussing Tim Burton's 1989 film, Batman. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.